Well, if you've been with us for the past, I don't know, year, I guess at this point, you know that we are now drawing near to the end of this year, which starts in Advent, which means we're drawing near to the end of this study now of 2 Corinthians. So we're almost there, one more week, and we're done. But as we draw near to the end of this book, once again, we return to this theme, this thing that's been running all the way through this letter, and that is Paul's dispute with these preachers and teachers who showed up at this church that he's writing to, and he showed up at this church that he planted in the city of Corinth after he planted it and then left. And like Paul, they showed up claiming to be apostles. And they even brought letters with them, as you recall. Letters of commendation. We don't know who wrote the letters. We don't know exactly what the letters said. But essentially, the letters said, hey, these guys preach and teach with authority. You should listen to them. And maybe the letters even said, and they're like an apostle, even like Paul. We don't know that. But we wonder about that because these guys came claiming like Paul to be apostles. But as Paul has been saying all the way through this letter, as he's taken up this dispute with them, and as he will say even more clearly today, he's going to say, listen, they are in fact apostles, but not of the same Jesus that I am an apostle of. And they're inspired by a spirit, but it's not the spirit of the living God. It's the spirit of the evil one. Paul's not indirect. And they preach a gospel. But the word gospel means good news. And the gospel that they're bringing to you in Corinth is not good news. Guys, it is a gospel of death. It is a gospel of condemnation. Whereas the true gospel is a gospel of life, abundant and a gospel, don't miss this, of freedom. And so then, what Paul is saying all the way through this letter, and he's going to say it again today in very clear terms, he's going to say, listen, the gospel that they preach produces a very different eternal end than does the true gospel. But that's not the only thing that he's going to say. He's also going to say that it also produces a different kind of person. You become like your gospel. That's the mantra for the day. And so then, whatever your gospel is, it's not just that which you believe in for your salvation. It is certainly that, but it also then becomes that which forms you and molds you and shapes you and makes you into the person that you are and into the person that you're becoming, which means, I mean, if you just kind of think about it, that the person that you are and the person that you're becoming says something about who or what your gospel is, does it not? Or maybe it just says something about how much of you you've submitted to who or what your gospel is. You become like your gospel, and when your gospel is the true gospel, then here's what you become. You become free, and you become free from sin, and you become free from guilt, and you become free from shame, and you become free from the cowering fear that, frankly, we should all experience in the presence of Almighty God apart from Christ, knowing all of the ways that we've worshipped ourselves as opposed to Him. So you're free from all of those things, but that's not the only thing you're free from. It's not the only thing you get. You become free from everything else as well. As little by little, as bit by bit, as piece by piece, you surrender yourself and your life and every aspect of it to Jesus and to what He's done for you, to who He is, and to who you are authentically in Him as you work through the implications of the gospel, which are all-encompassing, meaning they are large enough to grab up absolutely everything in your life, and they're intended to do so, Oh, they free you from everything else as well. It's awesome. It's amazing. And maybe you're thinking, okay, so then what is the true gospel just so that we know what we're talking about? Well, the true gospel in a nutshell is this. It is that Almighty God, the Creator God of the universe, created absolutely everything and absolutely everyone, but personalized it. He created me and He created you 
together with everything else and everyone else. And He created us for what end? To bring Him glory, to worship Him, to serve Him, to obey Him, to live the whole of our lives 100% of the time. You ready? Perfectly for Him. You're like, man, what's with the perfect thing? Well, that's, that's what He deserves, is it not? He is the greatest good in the whole of the universe. Unfathomably great. And what He deserves from us is perfection. And so then to require less would be a denial of who He is, which would be wrong. So just kind of work that whole thing out. So then, what is the Gospel? Because now I'm a little nervous. Because here's what I know. <laughs> I haven't done that. Not even close. So the Gospel is that that God so loved you in spite of the mess that you and I have all made of His perfect standard, that in the person of Jesus Christ, through a supernatural conception, He sent God the Son into this world to do what for us? Well, first of all, to do what we have not done in terms of living that life of perfect obedience and of worship and of service and so forth. This full-on life of 100% of the time and in every way perfect obedience to the Lord God. And then, having accomplished that in our behalf as a man for humanity, for those of us humans who claim Him as our Savior, as our hero, as our champion, as our rescue, as our relief. Okay, well, having done that, He still had to deal with all of our failures, did He not? And so how did He do that? He willingly offered His infinitely righteous, infinitely valuable life, suffering and dying on a cross, which suffering and death and payment, satisfaction for all of our debt was accepted, we know, because of His resurrection, so that through faith in Him and in His life of perfect obedience, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, that He might win victory over our sin, we might not only be forgiven and washed and made new and made clean, but we might be gifted all kinds of things that in truth we're tempted to try to earn for ourselves all the time even when we believe the true gospel. Like what? Like the favor of the Lord. We try to win that all the time, you know, and so we do good things for that purpose, subconsciously. But when you get behind it, that's what it's all about. Well, Lord, clearly you're going to let me have a good day today because I helped this lady across the street and I brought in my neighbor's trash can and, and I wrote a check to the Love South Florida deal and, and I'm going to show up on Monday night or Tuesday night for, for love bags and, I, you know, and I've come to church nine weeks in a row, which is unbelievable, and then I've done my personal worship every day this week and I'm feeling pretty good about my favor. In, oh, I'm sorry, wait a minute, hang on a second. Hold on, is that the way that it works? Or did Jesus please the Lord perfectly, which is the way to do it? And then He gifted you the favor of God. Here, I bought that for you. That's yours. The favor of the Lord. It's amazing, right? It's a good deal. But what else? What about God's heaven? Is that something you can earn? I'm going to help another person across the street. I think maybe I'm close to end, so now there's somebody else. I'm going to help them across the street. You know what? I'm not sure if I've done enough. So let me help this person across the street. Hey, you know what? Just leave all of your trash cans out and I'll bring them all in every Tuesday and Thursday. Is that it? How much do you have to do exactly? Oh, I'm sorry. It's perfection. Darn. Oh. It's a gift. Jesus says, I did that. That's, that's yours. That's free. I mean, it was expensive, to me, but it's free to you, God's family. 
The Lord makes a place for you at the table of the Lord as a son or daughter of Almighty God. There is no one greater and there's no greater status. There's no higher level of prestige that you can attain and you can't attain to it any other way but by faith in the one who has attained it for you and who alone could do that incidentally and who says here, that's another gift. That's a gift too. Why do we help people across the street? Why do we bring in their trash cans? Which I don't do, but I've done it occasionally. But, no, but I mean, really, like, why do, we do, why do we live a good life? Why do we try to obey Christ? Why do we involve ourselves in love, South Florida, and all of these other things that we try to do? What is this all about? Are we trying to make God happy with us? No, Christ made God happy with us. We are living a life of worship. We are praising Him, even as we sang in one of these songs, by the way that we live. We cannot not do it so that the world might see Him in and through us. So that's the true gospel that Paul planted this church in the city of Corinth on, but then he left. And then these guys showed up with their letters and borrowed prestige. And they taught a different gospel that went something like this. Yes, you need Jesus, but then in addition to that, you need to do this and do that and help people across the street and bring in your neighbor's trash cans and write checks and, and serve and go to church and do personal worship. And maybe, hopefully, if you can cobble up enough stuff in addition to Jesus, you'll be okay. And Paul says, okay, apostle, but not of Jesus. Spirit, but not the Spirit of God. Gospel, but not good news. Bad news. And here's why it's bad news. A, what can you do to contribute to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. I mean, either His work is finished or it's not. And He said that it was. I mean, God made man in the flesh, having lived that perfectly obedient life, having suffered and come all the way to the, the threshold of death, said it is finished. Meaning everything that needed to be done to repair, everything that needed to be repaired for you is done. And I did it. It is finished. And secondly, as we've walked through this, we've just said, well, okay, yeah, but so then if, it's, if you've got to add something, like if you've got to be a good person and in any way sort of contribute to this whole thing, then, then you're going to have to do that by obedience, right? I mean, there's no other way. There's not another option to that. And if you're going to obey and then that's going to contribute to the cause in some sense, well, and you better be perfect in absolutely every way. And let me just unmask that for a second, because if you're trying in any way at all to earn the favor of God, why are you doing it? Because it's not because God deserves it, it's because you're afraid. It is entirely self-centered. I am doing this for me. I am doing this for me. I'm do I'm, I say that I'm doing it for God, but I'm actually doing it for me. And my motivation for obedience is fear and insecurity. And Jesus is coming and saying, don't be afraid and don't be insecure. I've paid the price for you. It's done. It's finished. And in fact, resurrection from the dead on the third day proves it. It's a done deal. So the dispute that he's been having all the way through this letter is kind of a big deal. I mean, it, like it's the difference between eternal death, which is what the gospel of these adversaries of Paul produces, and eternal life, which is what the true gospel produces. But... Not just that. I mean, it, they produce different people too. And that's the part that I really want to focus on. That's the part that I want you to look at. You become like your gospel, and when your gospel is the true gospel, then 
you become free progressively as you submit yourself to it and let it work out the fullness of all of its implications in your life. So look for that as we begin our study today in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says this. He says, I wish that you, meaning that you Corinthians, whom I won to the true Jesus by the power of the true Spirit through the proclamation of the true gospel, as opposed to what these guys are proclaiming, I wish that you guys, and then he says, would bear with me in a little foolishness. Now I want you to think about that for a second, because what he's saying here, or at least suggesting, is that that's one of the things that these guys who showed up in Corinth after he left are calling him. And we've seen that as we've walked through this letter. They're looking at his sufferings and they're looking at his sacrifices and they're, they're looking at the fact that he's indigent, you know, and they're going, this man is a fool. This man who showed up with no letters of commendation, this man who lives this life that is, I mean, come on, would not a servant of the Lord have a better life than this? This, this man is a fool. And here's what apparently at least is not happening. What's not happening is the whole of this church in Corinth, I don't know, maybe some individuals did, but the whole of this church in Corinth is not rising up to reject that. They're not saying, hey, you know what, that's it, because he's our guy. And if you're going to call him a fool, that says more about you than it does. It seems at least that they're kind of listening to these different things and they're going, oh, I don't know, you got anything else to say? I mean, I'm, I'm half persuaded about this. So Paul, knowing this, seizes upon it and he says, I, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. And then he says, do bear with me. And now he's going to give them the reason why, but you won't understand the reason if you don't know what an arranged marriage is like. And we don't deal in arranged marriages anymore. But back in the first century, in Paul's day, okay, the, the father of a groom would get together with the father of a prospective bride, and those two dads would work out the details of a marriage between their kids. And there were details, incidentally, involved in this. I mean, this was a negotiation that would occur. But when the deal was affected, here's what would happen. They wouldn't get married. Not right away. Now a period of time would pass and they would each go home with their respective fathers and the prospective groom would go home with his dad and what would he do? He'd build a house for his bride attached to the home of his dad. And in doing this, what he would prove is he would prove, hey, I'm capable of taking care of this woman. And what would she do? She'd go home with her dad, where under the superintendent of her dad, she would wait for her groom to come. And while she waited, she would remain pure, thus proving her worthiness of the groom. Does any of this sound familiar? Because what does Jesus say? He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And I go, he says, to prepare a place for you there. And if I go to prepare a place for you there, I'm going to return to take you so that where I am, you may be also. It's exactly what would happen in those days. The groom would come with a party. He would get the bride and in procession take her back to his house for a celebration. Does that sound like the wedding supper of the Lamb, those kinds of things that maybe you've heard about? It's bridal language, except here's the problem. We, the bride, are impure. <laughs> We've defiled ourselves and wrecked the arrangement. But what is the Gospel? The Gospel is that our groom is so great that He Himself has paid the price necessary to make us pure again. 
It's remarkable, but it's that imagery now that Paul draws on because they all understood it. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. I know that's what you all are calling me, so let's be foolish together for a second. Do bear with me, and here's why. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I, your spiritual father is the idea, betrothed you or espoused you. That is to say, I arranged a marriage for you by which I engaged you through the true gospel to the true Jesus. To your one husband. One. And as your spiritual father, he says, here's my goal. It is to present you at the return of Christ when you'll be joined to him for forever. What? As a key word, pure virgin to Christ, your husband. But now he articulates a threat to the purity of the bride that is this church in the city of Corinth. And to do that, he flips all the way back in his Bible to the first few pages, to the fall of man, to Genesis 3, to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve, to the story of the serpent. He draws on that story now and he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent in the Garden of Eden deceived Eve by his cunning and through that cunning, brought defilement on her and destruction, not just to her, but to all of us as well. Your thoughts also will be led astray from a what? A sincere and, keyword pure, devotion to Christ, thus defiling your engagement to Him and destroying you. And in the same fashion, when the serpent slithers up to Eve and speaks, which is you know, itself something to be startled by, what does he say? His leading line is, did God actually say? He's causing her to question the truth of the Lord. And what Paul is saying is that's exactly what these guys are doing. They're slithering into your midst and causing you to question the truth of the Lord. And here's the deal. You're putting up with it, he says. And now he says that overtly. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims a what? Another Jesus. That's what these guys have been doing. Then the one that we proclaim to you, or if you receive a what? A different spirit. Okay, from the one you received when we preached to you, or if you accept a what? A different gospel. From the one that you accepted, to your shame, he says, you put up with it readily enough, so put up with a little foolishness from me. What is he suggesting? He's saying, listen, I know that I'm being called a fool there, but let me just, you know, sort of indirectly, at least in your case, say to you who the real fools are. And the fools, Corinthians, are you. You are the fools. You are the fools for letting these people into your midst. You are the fools for entertaining their false teaching. You are fools for not recognizing that they do not speak to you with the voice of the Spirit of Christ, but with the voice of the Spirit of the serpent who does not seek your good, but your destruction. And so here's what he does next. He compares himself with these guys, and I want you to notice the differences because here's what created these differences. They're two respective Gospels. You become like your Gospel. That's the idea. So he continues in verse 5, and he says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to, and notice what he calls these guys, these super apostles. Now, where did that come from? That came from the way that they presented themselves. They came and showed up and said, Hey, we've got letters. Paul didn't have letters. I mean, for starters, you know. In a minute, you'll hear that they said, hey, we're really good speakers. Paul's not such a great speaker. Our lives are not full of suffering and and all the stuff. Look at him. It's it's, it's foolishness. So they come claiming to be apostles, but not just apostles, super apostles. Like, here's Paul down here, and here we are way up here. Wow. That's astonishing. 
Talk about hubris. That's an incredible manifestation of pride. And here's the deal. Pride is one of the many ugly things that a works-based, I've contributed to it, gospel produces unwittingly, but irresistibly. However, it's just one of the many. So I'm going to throw out a handful. When my gospel is, if I obey God, then, based on my obedience, I'll be accepted by God. That when life does not go well for me, the way that I define the word well, what happens? I either get angry with God or I get angry with myself. You know, I get angry with God because I feel like, do you know how many trash cans I've dragged in, Lord? Do you know how many people I've walked across the street? Do you know how many $39 checks I wrote to Love South Florida? Do you know how many times I've gone to church in a row? Do you know how many times I've done my personal worship? How much time have I spent praying for you, serving you, and all of I deserve better than this? Listen, we all feel that way at times, don't we? You're like, come on, what in the world is going on? I thought I was your servant. I thought I was so easy to fall into this. Or we just beat ourselves up. We take up the baseball bat of our own suffering and continue to badger ourselves with it. I'm the, I'm the, you know, it's, it's all about me and I messed up and I blew it and God is hammering me and la, 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 la. All the stuff that the true gospel should free us from and give us the right perspective on. But... When it's a workspace gospel, it works out differently. When this gospel of I've contributed, therefore I'm accepted, is my gospel, then when I'm criticized, I'm not just a little put out by that. You know, I'm not kind of like, ah, oh, that sort of stung, man. That, that hurt. That was not cool. You know, I, don't, I didn't enjoy that, but I'm going to get over it. It's not that big of a deal. No, no, I'm devastated. I'm crushed by it. Why am I crushed by it? Because in my goodness is found my salvation. And so then when you questioned my character or questioned my judgment or questioned my conduct or questioned my works or questioned my words or questioned my competencies or questioned me in any way, you, you didn't just attack those things. You attacked the very source of my hope. Which is shattering because now I'm freaking out going, I don't know, maybe you're right. And It's like it's psychologically, it's way too traumatic can't deal with it. When this, I've contributed it to, to my own salvation gospel is my gospel, then my prayer life consists almost exclusively of me telling God what I'd like for Him to do for me and saying, hey, you know, please, would you just kind of, you know, come alongside and, and this is what I need and this is when I need it and, and then we'll talk again someday when I have another crisis. And, and that's really honestly what it becomes. Why? Because our relationship with the Lord becomes purely transactional. Lord, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done with the trash cans. Look at all, look at the, look, 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 look. I've been doing all this stuff for this moment. And this is the time for me to, like at a, at a casino, I'm going to cash in all my chips. Cashing in my chips, you owe me. Now do this for me. Who is God in that equation? Me or Him? Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying through my efforts to make me God and Him my servant. And my efforts have nothing to do with His glory, with His worth, with His goodness. It has everything to do with me. It's entirely self-centered. And so then all my works are what Luther called bad, good works. Why? Because I'm the motivation for them. It's interesting. And then just to bring it back to pride... You know, when this false gospel is my gospel, then here's what I do. And I, I do it unwittingly. I don't, I don't set out to do it, but I find myself doing it. It's irresistible. I find myself constantly comparing myself with other people because I have to be good in comparison with somebody. And so then what do I do? 
I compare myself to everybody else. And not only do I compare myself, I find myself criticizing. I develop this critical spirit that keeps putting people down. And why am I putting people down? Because again, it's all about me. So the reason that I'm putting them down, if you really get behind it, is so that I can step up on top of them and exalt myself. Meanwhile, the standard is perfection, and the comparison is not with each other. It's with God, which completely disabuses us of all of this, but we forget these things. You become like your gospel, you see. And so again, Paul says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. And then he says something that I love. He says, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I want to stop there for a second. That, it seems to me, is one of their criticisms of Paul. He doesn't have letters. He lives this life that looks like foolishness. And he's not a very good public speaker. Rhetoric was big in their day. Valued highly. And they're kind of going, hey, you know, um, honestly, we're just a lot better than he is in this regard. And what I love about Paul, and it's the gospel that frees him to do this, is he doesn't defend himself on this point. Like he doesn't, and I think he could have. You know, he doesn't come alongside and go, really? Hey, guys, how many churches have you planted? Because I'll give you my list. How many people have you won to Christ? Because I lost count at about 30,000, you know? After that, it's just, ah, I don't know. It's too big for me. I mean, this man changed the course of human history, Paul. That suggests something about his genius, about his brilliance, about his oratory skills. It's amazing. So he could have jumped right out there and started claiming all the things that, in fact, God did as his own and defended himself in this regard. He doesn't do that. He just kind of lays down and goes, eh, maybe I'm not so great. So what? Why? What enables him to do that? Because his identity is not found in his skills. It's not found in his abilities. It's not found in his, his capacities as a public speaker or in any other capacity. It's not found in everybody kind of going, wow, Paul, that was beautiful. That was amazing. Good sermon. And now Paul can feel good about himself. Or if it doesn't happen, then Paul can be crushed. No. He's free of that because his identity is in Jesus and in his capacities and in his accomplishments for Paul. Just kind of take a deep breath and imagine the relief of that for a second. That is beautiful and wonderful. So Paul says, huh, okay. Well, even if I am unskilled in speaking, he says, I'm not so in knowledge. Meaning knowledge of the true gospel. Indeed, he says, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things to which he adds or did I commit a sin in doing what? Because it's a true gospel word and it's a true gospel work. Did I commit a sin, he says, in, here we go, it's the opposite of pride, in humbling myself. Why? So that you might be exalted. I debased me to lift up you as opposed to the other way around, which is what those guys are doing to you. And how did you do that, Paul? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. So there it is. And here's why he did this, and we talked about this months ago. When he came into the city of Corinth, he recognized that it's a city in which people regularly, preachers and teachers of religions and philosophies, roll through and by their oratory skill, their great and persuasive rhetoric, so charm and thrill the crowds that they take up a love offering at the end of the service, if you will, you know? They're paid. It's... It's the way they support themselves, which is what these so-called super apostles have done. 
in Corinth. But it's what Paul from the get-go did not do. He did not want the message of the gospel to be polluted by that. In other words, he didn't want to be thrown into a line with a whole bunch of other people from a whole bunch of other religions and a whole bunch of other philosophies who charge money for their rhetoric, but instead he said, no, I want to separate myself and the true gospel message in such a way as to, you know what, I'm going to go get a job as a tent maker. This is a brilliant man. His career possibilities were staggering. But here's what fit in with his ministry life. I'm going to get a job as a tent maker, which is a dirty, smelly business dealing with leathers and all kinds of things, and I'm going to eke out an existence. I'm going to make just enough so that I can preach the gospel to you undefiled by this idea that I'm just like anybody else. And in fact, he goes on and he says, I robbed other churches by accepting financial support from them in order to serve you. And he says, and when I was with you, and what? Was in need. So he was in need when he was with them. I did not burden any one of you for the Christian brothers who came to me from the churches in Macedonia that we learned three weeks ago were hugely impoverished churches, particularly relative to the very wealthy Corinthian church. Okay, those guys, out of their poverty, supplied my need so that I could do ministry to you. So I refrain from taking money from you, and I'll continue to refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me. He says, this boasting of mine that I've given you the gospel for free and separated myself out from the other crowd, if you will, will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia, which is where Corinth was located. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And so what I am doing, I will continue to do, and here's why, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission, which is a different one from mine, that they work on the same terms as we true apostles do. In other words, if I now start accepting money from you guys, these guys are going to point at that as an authenticity of them. Well, you pay us both. Clearly, we're all apostles. Paul's like, now, you know what? We're not going to go there. And then he becomes very plain in his language. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan, he says, disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come to you with ugliness, he comes to you with beauty. <laughs> and he promises beauty and then delivers ugliness. That's the idea. And so since Satan does that, Paul says, you can imagine how these guys receive this, it is no surprise if Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And then what does he say? He says their end will correspond to their deeds, meaning their eternal end. But here's the irony of this. That's exactly what these guys think too. And that's exactly what they're counting on. Look at all the ladies I've walked across. Look at, all the, look at all the stuff I've done. Look at all the things I've said. Look at all the, look at all the prayers I've offered. Look at the, Surely everything's going to be fine. Paul's saying, no, it's, it's not going to be fine. I mean, if you compare yourself with yourselves, and I, you know, I, I mean, you look great, nobody will dispute that, but it's the wrong comparison. God deserves, therefore, demands, for it would be wrong for him not to, absolute and utter perfection. Therefore, yeah, uh, your end 
will correspond to your deeds because your deeds are polluted by the fact that the only reason you're actually doing it is to take God from his rightful place and to put him down here and make him your servant. So their gospel will produce a very different eternal end, but in addition to that, it produces a very different kind of person. And and what is the opposite of, of pride? It's that of humility. What did Paul say? I humbled myself. The gospel produces humility, but but not only that, I mean, if we just run through the same laundry list of stuff that we dealt with earlier, it produces all kinds of other things too. If if the gospel is, I'm accepted not because of anything I've done, I've abandoned any hope of that, because I'm not perfect, and it's all selfishly motivated, but I'm accepted because of what Jesus has done, it's finished on my behalf, right on. Then when life does not go for me the way that I would like for it to, okay, I'm not excited about that. You know, I'm not happy about that. I'm not tearless about that. I struggle in that, but I walk through that and persevere through that in faith, knowing my my heavenly Father who thought so much of me that He gave His Son for me has promised that He's with me even when I don't feel Him. My feelings do not determine the truth. His Word does. He's with me in it all, even when I don't feel Him with me in it all. And incidentally, He's taking it all, and He will fashion it some way to bring Him glory, which is the greatest good in all the universe, no higher end possible than that. And incidentally, then too, He has promised that somehow, within the mysterious counsel of His will, that I cannot, with my finite mind, claim to comprehend, will work it together even for my own good. And when the true gospel is my gospel, then when I'm criticized, I'm, you know, it doesn't feel good. I don't like that. It stings. It's painful, but it doesn't destroy me. Because my identity is not built on my ability to gain the praise of other people. My identity is built on the performance of Jesus, who has gifted to me the family of God and has made me a son or a daughter of the King. And when I pray, I don't just pray to ask God for things. I mean, I ask Him for things, but that's not the first thing on my list. Jesus says your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. But He does encourage you to ask, don't get me wrong, but that's something to take into mind. I praise this God who who is and who's worthy of my praise. Sometimes, I just sit quietly in His presence. I say nothing as opposed to feeling like I've got to fill up the time with my, my words. And I don't just pray when I'm in a crisis. I pray continuously. Why? Because I'm moving through life following Him and then finally I no longer have to compare myself with other people or to put anyone else down because, hey, you know what? I just kind of am who I am. And whoever I am, however great or not so great, I am by the grace of God. And here's who I am and here's who you are. You ready? You and I are people who on the one hand are so bad that it took the life of the Son of Almighty God to pay our debt to the Father. And on the other hand, are so loved that that's what He willingly did. I mean, we're told that it was for the joy set before Him that Jesus endured the cross. Well, what is the joy? It's not a what. The joy is is a collection of individual people. The joy is you. That's an amazing thought. And here's what that thought does. It wrecks your pride if you let it. And it enables you from that position of humility and then also of security to go, man, I don't need to step on other people anymore. <laughs> In fact, I can, it's like no big deal. I can lay down 
and then they can step on me. I will humble and debase me that they might be lifted up through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I can do that even when it's costly. I mean, I want you to think about this from Paul's perspective. The brilliant guy who worked as a stinky, because it smelled with that occupation, tent maker, okay? All right, eking out that existence, that affected where he lived. That affected what he wore, how he dressed. That affected where he went on vacation or even if he took one. It affected what he drove. They didn't have cars, but just play along. You get the idea? It affected where he ate and what he ate and when he ate and how much he saved and all of this other stuff. It affected all of it. Did it not? Good grief. What freedom up to do that? The fact that his security and comfort and identity was in Jesus. If you had seen Paul walking down the street of Corinth, you might have smelled him before you saw him. And you'd think the man is indigent. No emblems of status, none. He doesn't need them. I don't need them. You don't need them in truth. When the gospel really takes us and captures us and transforms us, all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. You become like your gospel. And when your gospel is the true gospel, you become free. Free of sin and guilt and shame and cowering fear and then free as the gospel takes over. As we submit to it, all of these other areas of our lives, you become free from everything else as well, which I think is kind of what Paul is gesturing toward, or toward at the end of this chapter, where after giving us this long list of amazing suffering things that he, he experienced. Did you read that in your personal worship this week? Like, I mean, big deal stuff. You know, it's not like he stumped his toe on the way to Philippi and he had to stop by an urgent care center and then they stitched it up and then he, he walked with a limp for a while and it was really inconvenient. No, no, no. It's like I've been shipwrecked three times, stoned, left for dead, you know. Those kinds of things. What freedom to do that? The gospel, the knowledge that his sufferings would end just like the sufferings of Jesus in eternal glory. But anyway, after giving us a list, non-exhaustive list, of some of the things that he suffered, he says this in verse 29, and I love this. He says, Who is weak and I am not weak? If I must boast, he says, I will boast in the things that show my weaknesses. Why? Because I recognize that my weaknesses are merely vehicles through which God then has the opportunity to show Himself strong. It's remarkable, but it's completely upside down from the whole of our culture. It's something. The Gospel frees us to be who and what we really are. And here's who and what we really are. We are weak. I've been reading this book called Adam's Return. I'm not sure that I would completely endorse it. I would not endorse everything in it, but it is brilliantly insightful in a lot of ways. And one of the many brilliantly insightful things that this man says is he talks about who we are. He says that all of us have a true self and that all of us have a false self and that we spend all of our time and all of our energy and all of our resources you know, cultivating our false self. We'd like to be the false self that we cultivate and try to portray to everyone else in our lives, including to ourselves. But in fact, that is not who we are. What the gospel allows you to do is to be who you are. To lay it down. To be weak. And to be okay with that. You know, I mean, I was raised, maybe you too, in a generation where the, one of the mantras is, don't ever let them see you sweat. Like, that assumes that everybody knows that you do sweat, doesn't it? Don't ever let them see you sweat. Why? Am I trying to impress somebody? 
I'm trying to win somebody's favor. Well, if I don't let them see me sweat, then what? I mean, what? I'll tell you what, I'm cut off from any help they might be able to give me. That's one thing that's a bad what. But really, don't ever let them see you sweat. I'm just going to tell you, I sweat. I, I sweat up here. You can see it plainly. I try to wear dark shirts, so you can't tell. But, you know, it's one of the reasons it's freezing in this room. But, but really, and I sweat over other things too. A parent that sweats over kids. A pastor that sweats over people. A leader that sweats over ministry, over our city, over our country. There's a lot to sweat over, and here's what I know. I am not anyone's answer. I'm weak. But I'm attached to an infinitely powerful God who through my weakness can show Himself strong and reveal to other people that He's the answer. That's the idea. You become like your gospel, and when your gospel is the true gospel, then you become free. And isn't that what you want? So I'm going to wrap it with two questions. Question number one, do you believe in the true gospel? Let me ask it this way. It's a famous diagnostic question, famous because it's brilliant. It just cuts right to the chase. So if you died today and you stood before God and He said, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you say? Because whatever you would say, that's your gospel. That's it, right there, plain and simple. How do you get around that? Well, Lord, you know, I don't know if you saw how many ladies I walked across the street and my neighbors said I was like the best neighbor ever and I brought in their trash cans and I mowed this guy's yard once just for the heck of it and, and then I did this and I did that and I did that. Yeah, that's just nonsense, man. I mean, if it's anything other than I got nothing but sin, so here's my mess, <laughs> but I have Jesus. And because of His perfect performance on my behalf, His sufferings and death that canceled my debt, here I am. If it's anything other than that, then you've got to deal with the fact that you better be perfect. If we know anything as human beings, it is that not a one of us is perfect. Not by God's standards, good grief. Not even by our own. Secondly, if you believe in the true gospel, then does your life reflect it? Or maybe a different way of saying is, where does your life not reflect it? Because we're all in the process of going, I think I need to give that to the implications of the gospel. I think I need to give this to Jesus. My need to portray myself as being something maybe other than who I am. Are you free from anger and from bitterness, from criticism and from prayerlessness? From the need to put others down that you might promote yourself? And are you free to admit your faults and limitations and, and weakness? Because you're weak. It's all right. Your God is strong. You become like your gospel. And when your gospel is the true gospel, well then, you become free. Which is, frankly, pretty awesome. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You um, that as Your Word says, that it was for freedom uh, that Christ Jesus came uh, to set us free. To set us free from our sin and from our guilt and from our shame and uh, from all of the things that um, frankly mortify us at times uh, when they arise up in our hearts or when they show up in our lives. We think, good grief, where did that come from? Well, it came from the heart of a broken person. One who is so bad that it took the Son of God 
to pay the penalty for. And yet one who is so loved that the Son of God did it. Willingly, joyfully, that we might be redeemed. Lord, thank You for the gift of Your Son. And with it, everything else. Freedom from sin and guilt and shame. Freedom from, from having to pose. Freedom to be who we are. May we be who we are. Weak, dependent, broken people who belong to You. Show forth the power of Your glory in and through us, weak vessels, we pray, that the whole world might know that there is a cure for our weakness, and His name is Jesus. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.